Hello, Raji Sohal here. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas to you and yours. On the podcast today, the flu has made more children quite sick in BC than doctors are used to seeing. We find out why that is and how much immunity has to do with the overall health picture. And Elon Musk has banned certain journalists temporarily and then reinstated their accounts. The UN has weighed in on it. Just what is happening at Twitter? We find out from a journalist whose colleagues are among those journalists targeted in the ban. But first, North Vancouver tops the list when it comes to most generous city in Canada. Let's take a listen. Well, for the second year in a row, the city of North Vancouver has been named the most generous community in Canada. Canada by GoFundMe, according to their year-end report. The report listed 2022's top 10 most generous cities in the country, five of which were actually BC cities. To tell us more about this list, we have Megan Weltman, spokesperson for GoFundMe. Hi, Megan. Hi, good morning, Raji. Well, I should admit up front that I'm from North Van. <laughs> Let's see, at least where I'm, I live now. And now two years in a row, North Van has been deemed the most generous community. So what does that mean? Like what yeah, metrics so, were used to kind of determine that? Yeah, so we measured the, the most generous cities by calculating how many donations were made by donors in locations with populations over 50,000. Um, so those donations can be made to fundraisers across the globe. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the that the donations were made to um, campaigns that were started in North Vancouver, but it means people in North Vancouver donated to to campaigns across the world and and did so to to such a degree that it that it put them in the number one spot for the second time. I'm so curious, what other places topped the list? Sure. So um, North Vancouver came in at number one, and then we have Burlington, Vancouver. Belleville, then Kingston, Guelph, New Westminster, Victoria, Peterborough, and Nanaimo. Interesting. And what kind of campaigns were North Vancouver residents donating to? Well, because this was um, a, a global effort to, to kind of look at, look at the uh, most generous countries and cities from a global perspective, we didn't break it down um, based on each individual location. Um, since it would be skewed. So there were so many big moments uh, in 2022 where we saw people all over the world um, contributing to, um, you know, the war in Ukraine. And there were many weather issues that, that happened across the globe that people were, were donating to. Um, so we, we don't know exactly uh, which campaigns that uh, these donations were going to. Um, but we do have some really cool statistics that I can share with you. Yes, so please. We had uh, $25 billion in donations uh, went to individuals and nonprofits. 17 million thank you messages were sent and received on GoFundMe this year, which is just really a testament to, to how much people were there for one another. Um, and then one in three fundraisers were started for someone else. Um, which again is just such a such a cool thought, you know, that people um, are just showing up for one another. Um, and the fastest growing categories that we saw in 2022 were family and community. Um, so you just see the um, this repeat itself over and over. It's just really this beautiful message that people showed showed up for one another. They not only donated, but they were creating fundraisers for people that they knew needed help. Um, and then what else do we have here? There, 80 million um, was donated to help people uh, with things related to gas, groceries, and baby formula, 
which is really um, speaks to, you know, the, the struggle that everyone's been having with inflation. So we see a lot of the things that are going on in the world today reflected back to us um, through GoFundMe because it's really just um, the people letting us know what, what they're struggling with and what they're going through. Yeah, just locally here in Metro Vancouver, I I wasn't surprised to see that. I don't mean to sound smug, but I wasn't surprised to see that North Vancouver topped the list again because this was uh, this was your end of the year numbers from GoFundMe. But apart from GoFundMe, there are so many social media sites, uh, Facebook sites that are set up in North Vancouver to help people mm-hmm. and to help them in various ways. And you mentioned there, uh, you know, getting grocery and baby formula to people. Those things, uh, some people are very lucky and privileged to not have to think about. But when you hear of somebody in need, of somebody in real need, someone who is struggling to put food on the table for their kid, that generosity means so much. And it tends to have a contagion effect, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. We have um, one of the a beautiful statistics for um, Canadian donors, not specific to North Van, um, is just one in, in seven Canadians um, have given um, to, to a campaign on GoFundMe, which is just that's such wonderful. A yeah, that's really high. I know uh, in the past, uh, you know, when someone puts a medical campaign up there on the GoFundMe site and you read mm-hmm. their story, it's the story that uh, will make you click to donate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just see, you know, people show up for their communities and rally to support one another. Um, Even you asked about campaigns specific to to North Vancouver, and there there was one there um, for a local teen who was fighting brain cancer. And in just a couple days, over $40,000 was raised to help her. So um, yeah, it, it, it is people show up when you when you need, when you need help the most, you know, when when you're going through these really terrible um life experiences or you lose a loved one or you're fighting a a disease, um, you know, this is a place where people can turn and and kind of utilize their network in a different way. And Megan, I'm not sure if you can comment on this, if you're aware of the data around it, but in general, as you go year to year with GoFundMe, is the website uh, garnering more for these organizations and individuals, the less around the same? Are people becoming more generous, I guess? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, um, you know, year over year, we have seen growth. Um, obviously, in, in 2020 and uh, even in 2021, when the pandemic shut down, you know, things from restaurants and, and anything in the arts, uh, we saw such a huge influx of people turning to GoFundMe when they needed it to avoid closures. Um, and therefore, you know, we saw a lot of uh, donors coming, coming out to, to help those uh, businesses that they cared about. Um, so I think in, you know, in perspective, maybe we're, we're not, we haven't grown since 2020, but when you look at it in a, in a larger perspective, kind of a bird's eye view of just growth in the past five years, we've seen enormous growth. But we, we are seeing just because of, um, you know, inflation and, and people are being a little bit careful with their, uh, more careful with their money. I think um, we are seeing maybe a bit less uh, donations um, just in the immediate uh, last last few months. Okay. Um, And that's interesting because it's in line with um, just yesterday or two days ago, I did an interview with uh, an organization called Imagine Canada. They joined me on the Jill Bennett show to talk about a recent study that shows because of inflation in Canada, across Canada, people were finding uh, it was just too much of a squeeze and they were giving a little bit less to charities at this time of year than they normally do. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I think, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully come out of this, you know, there's, saying we're kind of slowly coming out of the, um, you know, inflation isn't rising as quickly. And 
hopefully that will that will kind of balance things out. And um, you know, we're we're not worried about it. We're seeing so much generosity on the platform. Over 26 million donations were made in can- by Canadians this year alone. Wow. Um, so, which is really just an incredible number when you really try and yeah, it is. It. I think we're, we're so immune to hearing these enormous numbers, but 26 million donations is, is massive. It is. And especially when you think about, I guess that's 26 million views of, and that were motivated by a person going, I'm moved by this story. I'm inspired to help in whatever way I can. What I love about GoFundMe too, is that people will, you know, some people make these huge donations, big donations, but some people will, you can see it, you can read it in their message and in the amount, they're really only giving what they're able to. It's not a big amount, but it's this accumulation overall that. Uh, surmounts to changing people's lives. No, that's that's so true, and I'm, I'm glad you even mentioned that. Our our average donation is less than ten dollars. Oh, is um, it? You know, when you think about since 2010, um, we have helped to deliver and, and raise more than fifteen billion dollars from over two hundred million donations. And when you think about that giant number, it feels daunting as a donor, thinking, "Oh, well, I can only give." six or seven dollars, you know, I'm not going to make a difference. But it is those donations that make the biggest difference because together, you know, it, it's, it's such a strong um, support net- network when you get everyone's small donations together. It really does make a difference. Sure. Megan, I wanted to thank you for giving us some of your time today. Absolutely. So far this respiratory season, the BC CDC is aware of six reports of influenza-associated deaths among children and youth in BC. So why are children getting so sick this season compared to others? And as we look ahead, what can we do as their parents and caregivers to keep them from getting sick? My guest is Dr. David Goldfarb. He's a medical microbiologist and pediatric infectious disease physician at BC Children's Hospital. Hello, doctor. Hi, good morning, Raji. Thank you for being with us. Now, I just anecdotally, um, so I have two little kids, four and six years old, and the one who goes to preschool, uh, it seems for the last two months, half of the kids just haven't been there, have been uh, just a, a rotating group of children that have gotten everything from RSV to strep to COVID-19 to the flu. What are you seeing at the hospital this season? Yeah, it, it certainly has been a, a very busy season, and I would say un, unprecedented in, in terms of recent years. We're seeing uh, a lot of viruses that have been away for, for a while. Uh, earlier on in the fall, we had something called enterovirus that had been away for quite some time, and then it made a big comeback. And then more recently, we're seeing influenza that we haven't seen uh, for over two years, really, in, in many in much numbers in children, re- making a big return. Okay, so you did call it unprecedented. So why is it so bad this year? Yeah, there there are several different theories as to what's going on. I would say the leading one, and the one I think would explain the majority of what we're seeing, is that as I was mentioning earlier, there hasn't been very much circulation of many of these different viruses. Uh, over the last uh, two and a half years. And so they've come back and they've come back um, uh, together in many instances. So we see a lot of influenza and we see another virus called RSV kind of circulating together 
And, and so those are causing much bigger numbers than what we see in a normal year. Are our immune systems weaker? Like amongst children, has the last two years had an impact on our immune system? So that's one of the questions that's being uh, asked. I don't think there's any evidence to say children's immune systems are weaker. Uh, That's explaining much of what's going on. Uh, We saw this, for instance, in other jurisdictions that also didn't have much RSV in one year. And then the next year, like in New Zealand or in Australia, they saw a very big year. Uh, And it's really because um, children hadn't been exposed to that virus as well as others in the population. And uh, so then when it does make its uh, return, we have a larger proportion of the population that's uh, susceptible. And then we see higher numbers. Um, And so this was not unexpected. There were many, including uh, journal articles that had predicted this to happen. Um, But it does not mean that children's immune systems are weaker than normal. Okay, so there were journal articles suggesting that this was going to happen. Given that that's the case, uh, why weren't we better prepared? It's a really good question. Uh, um, I think we're going to hopefully have some learnings from this experience. Um, in, in one of the things in, in child health care, we say, you know, children are not little adults. The care of children is, is often uh, needs to be quite specialized, and we don't have a lot of buffer in our healthcare system for caring for children. And we deal with surges every uh, winter flu um, season, but this has been, you know, larger than what's uh, normal. And uh, we did have similar challenges. If you go back to 2009, when there was the big um, uh, influenza pandemic, and uh, we similarly had quite a bit of challenges, we needed to open up surge clinics, etc., but I think we need to have a bit more resources in the system to be able to manage these because they, they, we know these will be happening and we'll probably have um, situations in the future that will be similar. Now, what about this theory that I've seen online that, uh, including from some doctors, including Dr. Gandhi, who said that COVID-19 infections seem to have had a long-term impact on children's immune systems? Yeah, I think when we're talking about this, it's important to talk to uh, and talk with physicians with expertise in infectious disease and in immunology. Um, you know, we, we do see with some infections that there can be some weakening of the immune system. Really, with any infection, um, we'll see uh, increased risk in the short period afterwards of a secondary infection. So, for instance, with influenza, uh, one of the biggest risks is that... Um, Children can get a secondary bacterial infection after influenza, um, but we don't uh, right now have much evidence to suggest that there's a long-term significant weakening of the immune system after uh, children get mild illness with the COVID-19 virus. Okay, that's very interesting. And some parents are watching their kids getting the flu, catching the flu now, getting very ill from it, and they're wondering at what point do they need to take them to the hospital? Yeah, so there's guidance that's put out. We at BC Children's Hospital have some guidance. If you go to our, our social media handles, you'll see those uh, prominently displayed. There's also Child Health BC. Um, you know, one of the things is certainly if, if you're particularly concerned about your child, they're, they're very much outside of what you'd expect, that we don't want to be telling people not to go to, to seek care. Um, but some of the general guidance would be 
if um, they're not uh, drinking um, and they're not peeing as normally, that's one of the things with any infection, children can get dehydrated. So we want to make sure that they're drinking. That's one of the important things. Um, another would be if they're breathing, if they're having difficulty breathing. So if you notice they're, they're breathing quickly or they have signs that they're working to breathe, that would certainly be a, a reason to bring them in right away. Uh, if they have any kind of change in color around their lips, like a darkening of color around their lips, that's the reason to come in. If they have a prolonged fever, so flu will often cause fever up to three to four days. If it's going up to five days, that should be another reason to have them come in because that may mean there's another infection that's come in, like I was mentioning bacterial infections. Or if they have a fever uh, with a rash, um, uh, that would be another reason as well. Now, what about children who are got the flu, they recovered from the flu, should they be getting the flu vaccine? Yes, we, we would certainly still recommend the flu vaccine. I mean, first of all, uh, often people, you know, we call a lot of things the flu, but there's a lot of different viruses that can um, kind of cause similar symptoms. Like we have viruses called parainfluenza that are circulating and adenovirus and human metanuma. There are literally dozens of viruses that can sometimes give us symptoms that are similar to the flu. Um, And then the other thing is right now what we're seeing circulating is something called influenza A. But often in the tail part of the season, a different influenza called influenza B becomes a lot more common. And that actually uh, can cause children sometimes to be sicker than influenza A. And the vaccines that we have have um, protection against both influenza A as well as influenza B. So certainly it's not too late. And, um, and there's several reasons why it still makes sense to get the, the vaccine right now. Okay, Dr. David Goldfarb, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks again for having me. Take care. When Elon Musk was about to take ownership of Twitter, let's go back to that day, he claimed he wanted freedom of speech to reign. But now, you know, he's been suspending the accounts of some journalists who've reported on him. He's since gone back on that. My next guest is Megan McArdle. She's a Washington Post columnist who's written a piece on the saga. Welcome to the show, Megan. Hi, thanks for having me. So I I was describing earlier in the program what is going on with Twitter, and I just keep coming back to the term whiplash. It feels like he, Elon Musk decides one thing, changes his mind the next day. What do you make of Twitter's action against journalists? Um, <laughs> I think it is uh, an example of, you know, transparency is harder than it looks. <laughs> um, you know, he said when he started all this that he wanted to, uh, to change, to, to make it clearer to users for example, if they had been deamplified, why they had been deamplified. Um, he said that he wanted to do less banning than the previous regime had, and that didn't last very long. Um, and I think there's a reason it didn't last very long. I think it's actually really hard to to allow people on a platform for a bunch of different reasons. So one reason it's hard to do transparency um, is that advertisers don't particularly like it. Um, they don't necessarily want, you know, let me go back, actually. Let me say advertisers don't want to be next to controversial content, right? This is really important to them that they are not um, put next to, you know, adult content, that they are not um, forced to be next to controversial political co- content. 
And then you have the problem that, you know, these, these companies set up algorithms to prevent that sort of content from appearing in people's feeds. Well, the problem with that um, is that, that people uh, will try to gain your system. They will spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to get there, you know, if you tell them what the rules are. And so historically, tech companies have actually been quite reluctant to tell people this is exactly what will get you banned to publish a kind of set of hard and fast rules. Instead, they like to work by a kind of I know it when I see it standard. Um, and what Musk has been promising is to be different, right, is to, to actually tell people, uh, here's what you did to get violated. Here's how you could you unviolate yourself. And the problem with that um, is that if you do that, you are going to end up definitely with people who figure out some way um, to get around your, your bands. And so I think it has been just extremely difficult um, for these companies to, to give the transparency that Musk is promising. I think he is now finding why it's extremely difficult. And I think there's another aspect of transparency that he is discovering the downsides of, which is that if you provide transparency um, about, say, your own movements, um, it might make it easier for crazy people to find you. And obviously, yeah. for, for kind of obvious reasons, he doesn't want that. He claims that uh, that someone, that basically a stalker came, discovered where his car was, and then attacked his, his vehicle um, with his son in it. And obviously, for obvious reasons, he was uh, upset about that. Um, but that said, um, you know, he, he like banned these journalists, basically alleging that they had provided links to this site that... Uh, that tracks his private jet. Um, and he has gone back on a lot of the stuff that he promised. He promised that he was going to, you know, be more open, you know, do less, do fewer suspensions and so forth. And it didn't last very long. Um, and I think he's going to continue to have these kinds of challenges going forward. Yeah. What I found really interesting about your piece that you wrote in the Washington Post is that you center the conversation around this notion of transparency and like you said, uh, he had promised all this transparency, but then when it came to him personally, he, he doesn't want transparency. He doesn't want too much transparency either around any kind of policies about when across the board you do this, this is what happens. And it se- seems like he's just going to pick and choose. Meanwhile, you also mentioned Absolutely. there that advertisers don't like transparency because transparency might mean controversy. Exactly. I mean, this is like you don't want people to be able to just put whatever they want on your platform. Um, it really is. It's, it's a problem. Um, and so I think that, you know, Elon Musk is finding out that all of these things that, that people thought were just, you know, Twitter being. And look, I, I actually think that in a lot of cases, Twitter was biased against conservatives. Twitter did do things that, yeah, that were. Sure. Um, but that said, you know, there were also real reasons that this stuff was happening, and he is now finding out what some of those reasons were. Um, and I think he is going to continue to find out what those re- he, He's going to discover new problems um, because this stuff is actually just very hard. And if Twitter was indeed biased against uh, conservatives, as you suggest there, um, could it then become biased against liberals? Um. I'm very possibly. Look, I think that there is a kind of a fair point um, that Musk is being. He is. He is. I mean, he did ban these journalists, which of course set off a, a huge firestorm. He's now banned another of my colleagues, uh, Taylor Lawrence, I believe, has had her account suspended this morning. I don't know why. I just read this uh, last night. Yeah. Or uh, this morning. 
But um, I, I don't know. I'm not saying it's justified, by the way. I just don't, I don't even know what the purported reason for the, the suspension is. I just saw that it happened. Um, and, but on, on the whole, I don't think he has been as heavy-handed against the left. But here's another thing. It's because there was so little transparency. It's actually quite hard to know. What I do know is that in my Twitter feed, for, you know, under the previous regime, I frequently, especially under COVID, I frequently saw um, people that I follow who are conservative complaining that they had been banned, that they had gotten their account suspended. I myself had my account suspended briefly for vaccine misinformation for something that had nothing to do with COVID vaccines. I actually said, or, or I was making a point, I basically said, like, look, it's totally understandable why parents who saw their kid get vaccinated and then saw the kid regret, start regressing shortly afterwards, thought that vaccines caused autism. They were just wrong. Um, they don't cause autism, but it's understandable how they made that connection. And that somehow got flagged as vaccine misinformation. I had to fight to get my account unsuspended. So, you know, I, these were things that I definitely saw, and I am not seeing as many of those things. That said, under the previous regime, you didn't see a lot of journalists get their account suspended. There were some. There was, uh, I believe, a Politico journalist who, who got uh, banned under the old regime, but uh, who got sort of temporarily suspended under the old regime, and there was an uproar about that. But in general, it is shifting the character. Numerically, which is larger, I have no idea. And I will say that the left-wing journalists are allegedly being, or they're, you know, the, the mainstream journalists, I shouldn't say left-wing, but the, the, the mainstream journalists are allegedly getting banned for something that is not, like, contentious political question in the way that a lot of the prior bands were. Uh, you know, for example, I was a COVID hardliner. I was, you know, cancel everything and, and we locked down until there was a vaccine. That said, I thought that, that social media sites went way too far in trying to crack down on what they caused, called COVID misinformation and, in fact, ended up propagating misinformation in some cases and that they should have let that conversation happen, even though I was very much on the other side of the people who were getting um, locked down. How much of that is happening now? I have no idea. You know, like this is actually a very personal thing for Elon Musk about the movements of his private jet. I don't think that he should be uh, shutting down accounts for that, frankly. But it's not quite the same kind of stuff as was getting people. Um, this is a much less political, much more personal set of decisions. Yeah. And that's why the focusing on the issue of transparency instead of focusing on the issue of censorship seems to, in some ways, make more sense. But we saw the UN human rights chief step in to to welcome the reinstatements of those journalists who were uh, pulled off of Twitter, um, who were banned temporarily. And, and they said Twitter has a responsibility to respect human rights. Does it? Um, I mean, I think everyone has a responsibility to respect human rights. <laughs> I think human rights are just, that said, I am uncomfortable with this kind of, this is exactly what has triggered a lot of these wars over Twitter, which I also, I think are like really stupid and counterproductive, which is the sense that like, there's a group of people, um, there's a kind of large group of center left and leftward people who all form like one kind of identity group. You know, you did not see um, when conservative journalists got throttled or banned, as did happen, you did not see the human rights chief saying, well, you know, what about Breitbart's people? Because um, the stuff they were getting banned for was stuff that violated a lot of left-wing value commitments or was about, you know, vaccines and so forth. And again, I was on one side of that dispute and not the side of the dispute with the conservative journalists. Right. Um, 
But I think it's unhealthy to have an institution like the UN weighing in on one side of what is functionally a political debate. Yeah, it's interesting um, for even sure. When I am on one side of it, I think because it creates this sense, which is exactly what people, you know, is, is the kind of paranoia that has been said that, you know, that there is a conspiracy against conservatives. And, you know, it consists of everything from the mainstream media to the UN. I would like a, I would like to see us not feeding that quite as strongly as I think the UN has here. I think this is one that they should have stayed out of, even though, like, look, I'm on one side of he shouldn't have banned journalists for doing their job, which yeah. is functionally what he did. Um, but I think that, you know, we we have to not turn this into a, like anything that happens to us. I think one of the fair questions that conservative asked when people were getting very, very upset about the, the bans of journalists, which I was also upset about. Um, I you know did a big tweet storm on it yesterday. Um, was People were saying, well, when I was getting banned for suggesting that maybe we shouldn't mask kids in elementary schools or for you know suggesting there might be problems with the vaccine side effects or whatever, where were you getting all outraged about this? Where were you thinking that this was you know a huge problem for free speech? And the answer is, frankly, nowhere. No one was mounting that defense. Mm. And I think that that's a problem. All right, Megan, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you for that very interesting conversation. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.